Welcome to Eye on the Triangle with Sesha Hindi, a weekly glimpse into our community, bringing you news from the brickyard to your backyard. This week in news on Eye on the Triangle, a brief rundown of the latest news. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle. I'm Allison Harmon. This week, Evan Garris is out of the country, so I'm filling in um, for news. First up, Israeli's ambassador to the U.S. said the country will reject an international commission proposed to investigate its deadly raid on, Ga- on a Gaza flotilla, insisting to Fox News that Israel has the right to investigate its military. On May, 31st, on May 31st, Israeli commandos boarded an aid flotilla that had been heading toward Gaza to thwart a, bo- a blockade. Those on board said the commandos were shooting as soon as they boarded. Israel says the pro-Palestinian activists on the lead ship were armed with hand weapons and instigated the attack. The raid left at least nine passengers dead. The AP reports that bloody dozens of injured passengers were sprawled on the deck and troops dived into the sea to save themselves from hand-to-hand combat. Six Israeli soldiers were injured. Nearly all of the 682 activists who were removed from the international waters into Israeli detention centers and hospitals were are reported to have been deported. About 120 of the detainees were expelled overland through Jordan, while hundreds more, most of them Turks, are due to be flown out. Eight of the nine passengers killed in the flotilla were Turkish. And Turkey's parliament has called for relations with Israel to be reviewed, the BBC reports. Israel's U.S. ambassador said Israel would not apologize for the incident. President Barack Obama, who met with Palestinian leader Mamour Abbas in Washington last week, has called the Gaza situation unsustainable. His meeting with the Israeli president was, was canceled when the urgency of the flotilla attack required his attention in Israel. Obama urged both Israel and the Palestinians to make concessions and return to peace talks, which had been paused. He called for the Israeli government to curb the building of Jewish settlements in the West Bank and had asked the Palestinians to prevent any actions that could incite confrontation, BBC reports. He has promised $400 million in new aid for the Palestinians. The World Bank warns that Europe's debt crisis has created hurdles on the path to economic growth, the BBC reports. Its latest report projects that global GDP will expand between 2.9 and 3.3% in 2010 and 2011, then strengthen between 3.2 and 3.5% in 2012. Globally, GDP shrunk by 2.1% in 2009. The World Bank's report said if the government debts debts continue to rise, it could push up the price of credit, which would negatively affect investment and growth in developing countries. Four NATO NATO soldiers died when their helicopter was shot down in southern Afghanistan, according to the BBC. NATO said the aircraft was hit by hostile fire. The troops were Americans. The Taliban claimed its fighters had shot down the aircraft with a rocket-propelled grenade. And this isn't the first time a NATO helicopter has been shot down in Afghanistan. The BBC reports that a number of NATO helicopters have been shot down in the country since the alliance sent the troops into Afghanistan in 2001. In America, Interior Secretary Ken Salazar told a Senate panel that a six-month moratorium on deep water drilling will be upheld, the BBC reports. He also reassured senators that the moratorium, which was imposed after last month's Gulf of Mexico spill, was a pause rather than a permanent stop to oil exploration. Although efforts have been made to quell the oil gushing from the Gulf of Mexico, Coast Guard Admiral Thad Allen said the amount of oil captured from the leaking well could almost double by next week. 
President Barack Obama, who is scheduled to make his fourth trip to the Gulf of Mexico next week, has criticized BP's efforts to deal with the spill. A Gulf, a Gulf Coast official accused BP of shipping workers into Grand Isle, Louisiana, purely for President Barack Obama's last visit last Friday. Jefferson Parish Councilman Chris Roberts told CNN that the oil company bussed in three to 400 workers to help clean up the, eff- the effects of the oil spill, but it sent them away once the president left. Roberts said the workers were offered $12, $12 an hour to work in what he called a dog and pony show. Roberts said he's never seen more than 20 workers in the Grand Isle, at the Grand Isle cleanup site, but BP Chief Operating Officer Doug Suttles denies the claim, telling CNN it is not unusual to see people wrapping up work in the afternoon. In the state, a woman hiking near Asheville was struck and killed by lightning earlier this week. Her boyfriend, 32-year-old Richard Butler from Tennessee, was hiking with her at Max Patch Bald outside of Asheville and said he was planning to propose to her during the outing. Butler said the Ash- Butler told the Asheville Citizen Times that heavy rain lit up as soon as uh, they walked toward the bald, but the storm worsened and sent three lightning strikes near the couple, the last of which struck Bethany Lott. She was declared dead at the scene, and Butler suffered third-degree burns. And now for sports, we have Tyler Everett. From the sidelines on Eye on the Triangle. Your weekly update on athletic events. All right, so my name is Tommy Anderson. I'm in here with Tyler Everett from uh, Technician, good friends on the third floor of Witherspoon Student Center representing NC State Student Media. So how are you doing, Tyler? I'm doing just fine. How are you tonight, Tommy? Pretty good, pretty good. So um, how did, this base, how did uh, State's baseball team season end this year? Uh, about midway, two-thirds of the way through conference play this year. It looked like uh, they might not even make the ACC tournament. There's 12 teams in the ACC. Only eight go to the conference tournament. State was right on the fringe there but finished hot. Won 10 of their last 13 games. A couple wins over Georgia Tech and Florida State in there. Both those top five, top 10, top 15 type teams. So State made it to the ACC tournament. Hot play got them there. Uh, first round of the ACC tournament took down Clemson 13-5, to had a day off, and then actually had another day off. Friday they were supposed to play late against Georgia Tech. Rain called off that game after half an inning. At least it called off the portion of it played Friday night. Moved to Saturday morning, and State actually got shelled by the Yellow Jackets. I believe they lost 17-5, to and that game was called after seven innings. There's a mercy rule in the NCAA where if a game is a – there's a 10-run margin going on after seven innings – or maybe just a 10-run margin after five. I don't know that rule exactly. But anyway, that game was called early. State needed uh, Clemson to beat Georgia Tech that afternoon in order to have a chance at the ACC championship game that night. It's an eight-team bracket broken into four teams, uh, into two pools of four teams. State was in with Virginia Tech, Georgia Tech, and Clemson. And so because Clemson won the game against Virginia Tech later that night um, was set to decide who would take on Florida State in Sunday's ACC championship. State beat Virginia Tech in really a, a crazy game. They were up 7-1, to one, down 8-7, went back and forth for a couple innings, uh, One scored one run on a, on a hit batter, drove in a run. Another play became a bunt double. Andrew Simpson bunted, uh, was running the first, and actually knocked the ball out of the first baseman's hand to put some runs on the board. So really an exciting game. State hung on and won that one in 10 innings to advance to Sunday's ACC championship game. 
Anytime you can get to an ACC championship game in any sport is huge. Baseball is perhaps the best conference in the country. Uh, ACC is by far the best. Maybe the, the ACC's strongest conference is baseball. They are extremely well represented uh, deep into the national tournament every year. So to make that was huge. The game against Florida State did not go as the pack would have wanted it to. They played tight with Florida State for about six or seven innings. We're actually up 3-2 in either the sixth or the seventh. I recall this was a couple weeks ago now. But they hung close with them, just ran out of arms late in that game. Uh, Florida State piled on some late runs, and State kind of faded to finish second in the ACC tournament. But no shame in that. And that set them up for an NC, a return to NCAA regionals. They didn't make it in 2009. They did make it in 2008. But they were back at it again in 2009, went down to Myrtle Beach this past weekend. Lost out of that real quickly. I spoke to a couple of the players. They seemed real disappointed with the way they played down there. It just seemed like they had a couple off days at the wrong time. They lost to College of Charleston and to Stony Brook. It was a double elimination tournament. So two games and two losses meant the season was over. And and that was all for baseball. They, a good run late, but not, not how they wanted it to work out down there at Myrtle in regionals. Right. So um, at, after the season's over, um, is, is there anything to look back upon, any good news, postseason honors, stuff like that? A little bit of good news uh, fit in there between the ACC tournament and the NCAA tournament. Dallas Polk, a star second baseman, has had a great four-year career, was named Freshman All-America after his freshman year. He got a little bit more All-American honors to add to his uh, trophy case there for him. He was named third-team All-America for his efforts as a senior, one of the best hitters in the nation and in the country. I believe he finished second behind his cousin and teammate Drew Polk. They were the top two players in the ACC and base hits. Actually came down to the last game of the regular season. They had the same number, but Drew Polk went three for four to take that title, and Dallas had two hits that game to finish with 86 hits while Drew finished with 87. So the class of the ACC as far as getting on base with hits, and he was rewarded as such with the third-team All-American honors. No, I, I heard a little bit about this. Um, any? Do we have any uh, Wolfpack players taken in the draft this Had year? five of them. The headliner wow. was, as is, seems like it's always the headline at Wolfpack Sports, was Mr. Russell Wilson was taken in the fourth round with pick number 140 by the Colorado Rockies. Like I said, he was one of five taken. The other players taken were Alex Sogard, a senior pitcher, junior Jake Buchanan, a junior pitcher, uh, Dallas Polk was also taken, Kyle Wilson was taken, and I believe Drew Polk also. I hope that's five. If that was six, then one of those guys didn't make it. I'm not not looking at it right now. But five players taken, uh, Russell in the fourth round, junior Jake Buchanan to the Astros in the eighth. I believe Dallas went to the Marlins in the 19th, Kyle Wilson to the, to the San Francisco Giants in the 24th round, and... Alex Sogard will follow Jake Buchanan to Houston. He went to Houston in the 20, he went to the Astros in the twenty sixth round. Now th- this is impressive to me. Our, our listeners aren't able to see this, but Tyler's recalling us all off the top of his head. He doesn't have a cue sheet here, so he knows when those guys are taken, when they're overall. Very impressive. But anyway, a, a, a good segue. I guess you mentioned it earlier um, from baseball to football is Russell Wilson. So um, let's talk football. What do you think Russell Wilson's going to be doing come fall? It's a 50-round draft, so to be picked in the fourth round, people need to understand that's not like the fourth round of the of the NFL draft where there's seven rounds. If you're the fourth round, that's towards the bottom. Being in the fourth round of a 50-round draft is really is is quite an accomplishment. It shows a lot 
about how confident the Rockies are in his abilities, and a lot of players taking that high would, would leave college and not look back. But Russell actually came out and said he the first thing he did after being picked was he called Tom O'Brien to tell him that he would be at football practice August 3rd. So uh, rival ACC schools might have got their hopes up when they saw he got picked that high in right, the Major League right. Baseball draft. But unfortunately for them, and thank goodness for us, he's saying he will be back on the fall, running around, making plays, throwing touchdowns. Um, looked at his numbers today. They'll, they'll, they'll blow you away. He's only played two years here. Most of the competition in the NC State record books had four years, and he's he's fifth in completions and passing yardage all time. Like I said, this is after two years, and he's also third all time in touchdown passes after just two seasons. So what he's done on a team that's struggled is just unbelievable. And and like I said, thank luckily for Wolfpack fans, we're going to see more of it come fall. Yeah, I mean, he's really held the team together. I mean, we're all happy about the prospect of having him back in the fall, but uh, kind of wonder – Kind of makes you wonder how to how do you, how do you think Mike Glennon's feeling right now? He's thinking, oh boy, you know, I've sat on the bench, you know, played in the spring game. Maybe I'm going to get a chance to start in the fall. And Russell Wilson's just like, nah. Mike Glennon will swear to the media and everybody who's ever going to get a chance to get a recorder near him that he's okay with it and he's waiting his turn. Maybe I'm just selfish, but I can't imagine how I'd be in that place right, with right. his talent. He was one of the top quarterbacks in the country coming out of high school. He's been itching for his opportunity and he played well in the spring. Um, it wasn't that Russell wasn't going to leave, but it was up in the air. And then now that it looks like he'll be back, Glennon's going to say all the right things. And as far as I know, he's going to work his tail off. He's not going to show any any bad attitude about it. But you, like Tommy said, you have to wonder how happy he is with that because when is that chance finally going to arrive right. for him? And, and it's just a shame. It, it's a great problem to have. There's con- there's probably every team in the country but us would kill to have an issue of which great quarterback do I want right, to put right. on the field. But it is tough for, for Glennon and, and – the way Russell plays, even though Glennon's capable of coming in and doing things, you can't imagine O'Brien putting Russell on the bench much. But a great luxury, and Glennon knows the way Russell plays um, injuries, unfortunately. You hate to say it, but there's a great chance Russell gets hurt. Um, yeah. Uh, reality kind of sucks there, but, you know, there's a, right. there's a chance Glennon will see action, whether it's the way he'd want to come in just earning it or whether it's because Russell uh, has an injury of some sort. So overall, are we kind of looking at the same dynamic for football? You know, high-powered offense, lots of points, but kind of a anemic defense, like giving up a lot of points. I certainly hope it won't be anemic this season. That's nothing novel that I hope it won't. But um, one reason to think it might be drastically better is last year the problem with that secondary in particular is what people groan about. Those guys were very young, and in a lot of cases they weren't lined up right and it was a lot of mental issues. They weren't even near receivers when they caught the ball. It wasn't that they were getting beat up and down the field because they were too small or too slow or, or whatever that was. It was a lot of mental things, and, and a lot of times people, that's the biggest change between their freshman and their sophomore seasons is they have the mental stuff down, and these guys are these guys are great athletes, so you, you have to hope and maybe even expect a little bit that if they get their, uh, their reads right, if they get in the right places, they can finish plays. It's just a matter mm-hmm. of having the wherewithal out there on the field and the comfort level to be where they need to be, and then obviously it's a lot easier to finish when you know where you need to be. Right, so finish with baseball, looking forward to football a little bit. Um, do you think it's uh, too early for Eye on the Triangle to kind of turn our sports focus all the way forward to uh, next spring? Uh, I guess next next early spring, if you want to call it that, for a basketball. Yeah, basketball will kick off in early November. Sorry to correct you there. Though. Actually, yeah. it's hard to believe because yeah. football will still be going. But, yeah, basketball will have a game or two in early November. And I can't remember a, a more anticipated season for either revenue sport, football or basketball, than this upcoming basketball season with – 
the way Tracy Smith played last season, he's the kind of guy that only needs a little bit of help to turn his team into really a force to be reckoned with. And he's going to have as much freshman help coming in as, as anyone's seen in a long time. C.J. Mm-hmm. Leslie, Ryan Harrow, and Lorenzo Brown are all five-star prospects. State hasn't had a single five-star prospects in years. So to have three coming in at once is really, you know, it's got people really drooling just thinking mm-hmm. about um, the – the lineup that'll be out there when you think about potentially having three five-star recruits all all potential all, all ACC freshman level kind of guys with Tracy Smith who's who's second team made all, himself second the team. class of the conference yeah, yeah second team all ACC last yeah. year I mean it, it's gonna be a lot of fun to watch yeah a lot definitely of fun to watch. definitely so if you guys have any sports news that you want us to uh I guess hone in on next week uh, any, any anything you felt we missed uh choose an email um what's your technician email uh, technician email is sports at technicianonline.com. <laughs> so shoot me anything you'd like to correct me on or tell me I need to work on or, or suggestions for next week, and I'll certainly take those into consideration. Awesome. Well, Tyler Everett, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, so uh, you're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC, FM Raleigh. My name is Tommy, and we will be right back. listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Eye on the Triangle's VIP. Talking to people that matter. This week's VIP is actually a duo. We have, um, first up we have Jewish American author and activist Anna Baltzer. Um, and after that, uh, Palestinian um, documentary filmmaker Hella Gabriel. In the past couple weeks, it's been pretty hard to ignore the situation in Israel-Palestine. Um, while the issue and accompanying peace initiatives have been in the minds of policy-minded individuals for decades, um, recent events have focused domestic and international attention at an accelerated pace. So, Anna, thank you very much for being with us. If you could just talk a little bit about the organizations you work with and the work that you do. Sure. Um, so I spend part of my year in uh, Palestine working or have in the past, and it, it changes through the years, um, with the International Women's Peace Service, which is a solidarity group. We document human rights abuses in the West Bank and throughout Palestine, and we support Palestinian-led nonviolent resistance to the occupation. And I'm happy to talk more about the occupation and that nonviolent resistance movement that people don't tend to hear too much about. Uh, this year, I'm actually uh, co-leading a delegation, bringing people to Palestine to learn more about the situation, and that's with the Interfaith Peace Builders. So um, I do a number of things in Palestine, but really most of my work is back in the United States here where, um, where I travel around. I was recently there in North Carolina where we met, um, trying to, to tell Americans a little bit more about what's happening, things that people don't tend to hear too much about, um, and, and hoping for, for Americans to understand better our role in the Middle East and the way that we are in many ways funding the continuation, um, fueling the, this conflict. Um, and one of the groups that I've worked with, especially during my touring in North Carolina, is a group that I, I think it would be great if students knew about um, and people all over the state. It's a group, um, the, the Coalition for Peace with Justice, um, in, based in the Triangle area. And I'd love to, to put that website out there just if people, as they're listening, become interested in this, in this issue. Um, their website is peace, and then there's an underscore, then the word with, and there's an underscore, and then justice.org. And there's 
it's an incredible group. You know, I, I travel around the country, and this is one of the most active groups I've come across, and it's right there in North Carolina. So given what most people see as kind of a rigid cultural division in this conflict, how did it come about you being a Jewish American advocating for Palestinians' rights? Um, well, I grew up really knowing nothing about Palestinians. I didn't really even know or use that word. I had no concept of anything other than the narrative that I'd grown up with, which was that Israel was a, a seeking democracy that was constantly under attack. Um, and I came to hear a different narrative um, when I was traveling um, around the world. I'm a big traveler. I love adventures. And um, I began traveling through the Middle East, and I backpacked around Iran and Syria and Lebanon and had an extraordinary experience um, being taken in by families, many of them Palestinian refugees. And through my friendships with those families, I started hearing this very different story than the one I'd grown up with. And my, you know, my first reaction was that I didn't believe them. I thought this was a kind of uh, propaganda. And I set out to do some research to, to kind of prove myself right and quickly realized that I was actually the one missing a lot of information. Then I went to see with my own two eyes what was happening. And once I did, I've become very active in, in ending um, apartheid in Palestine, a system in which Palestinians are being denied their most basic fundamental human rights uh, and, and international law um, by, by the state of Israel, a state that claims to speak for me and to act on my behalf simply because I'm Jewish. And, and I reject the notion that human rights violations in any way are in line with the tradition of Judaism or with what uh, is best for Jews or, and everybody else <laughs> in, uh, in that part of the world. So you yourself say that you may have approached this situation um, maybe a little bit underinformed, as the average American might. What what would you say the average American would find most striking, I guess, about the Israeli-Palestinian situation today? Um, I think a lot of Americans would be, and, and have been in my experience as I, as I travel around, um, really shocked the way that I was by, um, by the situation on the ground, the most basic things. So, for example, there's a, a system in the West Bank, which is occupied by Israel militarily, um, there's a system of segregation. For example, there's a system of segregated roads where what amounts to one kind of road if you're Jewish living there and one kind if you're Christian or Muslim. Um, a lot of Americans don't realize that many Palestinians are Christians. So when we talk about the oppression of Palestinians, that includes Christians being oppressed simply because of their religion and ethnicity, um, a system in which people are, the Christians and Muslims are denied access, fair access to water denied the ability to reliably go to their hospitals, go to school, earn a living. Um, basically, life is rendered almost intolerable. People unable to do the most basic things to have a life of, of dignity and self-determination. Meanwhile, the Jewish people living in the area are, are given a life of, of privilege, um, paid oftentimes to move on to more Palestinian land. And Jews around the world are invited to take advantage of these offers and these privileges, while the people, many of whom have been living there for hundreds, if not thousands of years, their families, um, are denied these basic rights. It's a system, um, again, I, I use this word um, carefully, a system really of apartheid that is reminiscent of the system that was in South Africa, where people were denied, uh, South Africans of color, denied their basic human rights 
because of their ethnicity and religion. And I think, in particular, the, the parallels with our history here in the United States are important, that here in this country, of course, we had, and of course there are remnants of this still today, systems of segregation and racism within the law itself, institutionalized racism um, and segregation, and that the struggle for civil rights for people of color in this country is is very similar to the struggle for civil rights in in Palestine, and that if people are opposed to oppression of people of color in this country, so should we be opposed to systems of oppression elsewhere in the world, in particular in Palestine. And one of the things that's most important and that I think shocks people the most is the fact that we are very involved in this, that, you know, it may feel like something on the other side of the world. Why should we care? Well, we are very... Um, we're very involved. We're the ones paying for it. And our government, and that means us, we, you know, we, we fund the government, give more, give more U.S. tax dollars to Israel than we give to any other country in the world, what amounts to more than $10 million a day. So I think it's important that when we talk about a system of apartheid and segregation, when we talk about the fact that Palestinians are denied their water, food, the ability to go to schools, hospitals, that we recognize that this is something we're a part of and that to simply feel bad about it is not enough. If we are the people who felt bad but didn't speak out, then we are as, as guilty and complicit as, um, as anyone. So as I mentioned before, you recently gave two uh, presentations in the Triangle area, one in Raleigh and one in Chapel Hill. Were these your first visits to the Triangle? Um, they were. It was actually part of a, a week um, of events in North Carolina, and there were there were actually seven public events around the state, most of them in the Triangle area, and then also a bunch of different universities. Um, this was my first trip touring in North Carolina, and again, I was just so impressed by the state and by the activism and by how you know moved and concerned people are with apartheid and segregation in Palestine. And I think really the, the legacy of activism in North Carolina, SNCC, for example, I was so uh, moved to hear about the history of SNCC and the founding of SNCC at Shaw University just over 50 years um, this year. Um, I think people are able to make those connections with the history of North Carolina and the important struggle of, for civil rights in, in North Carolina. So I was really impressed during that, during that trip and, and, again, encourage people to get involved locally with the Coalition for Peace with Justice. And, again, I'll just say that website one more time for anyone who missed it. It's peace underscore with underscore justice dot org. So if someone wanted to get involved in the PC initiative in this area, what would be the best thing to do? Well, people, if you go to that website, you can find out about future events. So you can actually show up and, and see, uh, you know, if, if there are events educating people about this issue or, or showing people how to get more involved. There's actually someone speaking um, in town these days, and there will be an upcoming event actually with with Norman Finkelstein. The person speaking these days is actually a friend of mine named Mark Braverman, who's also Jewish, who's talking a lot about the ways in which Christians in this country can join together with Jews and with and with Palestinians, um, other Palestinians, to um, to work for peace with justice. Um, he's an amazing speaker, and people can go to that website to find out about those events. And if you go to those events, not only will you learn more, but you can get involved and, and talk to the local group and see the way in which you might fit in. Um, you can join the list just by going to that website to hear about future events if you can't make that one. 
Okay, so that website, Peace with Justice, the best way for um, people in the area looking to get involved. So kind of a two-part question. How long have you been involved um, with the Peace Initiative? And since your initial involvement, have you noticed the uh, the public mindset or I guess the public receipt of the issue? How, how has that changed since you became first involved? Um, well, uh, I personally first went with an open mind. In other words, first went to see something different from what, what I had grown up, uh, you know, with an openness to recognize that maybe I didn't know everything about the issue and trying to learn from people I hadn't heard from before. I first went then in, in 2003, and I've gone back every year since. So I guess it's coming on, this will be my, my eighth year visiting the area. I'm going in a, about a week. Um, and I've been uh, most active here in the United States for the past four and a half years, touring almost full-time trying to, to talk with these different communities around the U.S. And the response has been really extraordinary. I am so moved and impressed by the openness of, of Americans who I encounter who, who, when they see a system of segregation, recognize that there's something wrong there, that just as that was wrong in the U.S. and in apartheid South Africa, so was it wrong in Palestine. Um, and what I've noticed, even over the past couple of years, is that the way that the movement is building in a, in a way that I can hardly believe is hard to keep up with. Um, you have, for example, Jewish groups like Jewish Voice for Peace that, um, that have memberships of over 100,000 people um, showing the way that, that APAC and, and very pro-Zionist Jewish groups um, really do not speak for most Jewish Americans, that, that now there are more people who are supporting groups like Jewish Voice for Peace than there are people supporting groups like APAC, the American-Israel um, Public Affairs Committee. Um, and the most striking change that I've seen um, is the growing support for the global movement of boycott, divestment, and sanctions, which basically says, you know, if we can't cut off those billions of dollars going from our government to support Israeli apartheid, at least we can stop profiting off of it on an individual and institutional level. And what we see happening all around this country, um, especially at universities as well as in churches, are um, campaigns for divestment, where students are saying, we don't want our tuition dollars invested in companies that are profiting from or companies that are perpetuating this conflict and denying Palestinian basic human rights. Um, so I've seen a growth, really, of that movement of boycott, divestment, and sanctions that is really exciting. Um, and, and that's something else the Coalition for Peace with Justice is working on. And just one more time, Coalition for Peace with Justice, that website is peace-with-justice.org. You can go there, um, find out ways to get involved uh, in the area, in the triangle. Um, again, I've been speaking with Anna Baltzer, author of the book, a Witness in Palestine, which detailed her accounts of uh, several trips to the Middle East. She also operates a website called AnnaInTheMiddleEast.com. You can go there and find out more information about the organizations she works with, the work she does herself, other ways to get involved, other information available on that website, AnnaInTheMiddleEast.com. Again, we're very gracious for her being able to give some time to Eye on the Triangle, and uh, best of luck with everything, Anna. And for the second half of this week's VIP on Eye on the Triangle, I have joining me live from Los Angeles 
is LA-based documentary filmmaker Hella Gabriel. Um, she's been she has been working for Paramount for several years, and she's working on a documentary uh, which details the uh, Palestinian-Israeli uh, situation over the years. So, um, Hella, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Tommy? I'm doing excellent. Thank you so much for uh, giving time to join us here live from across the country. Three hours difference. Oh, cool thank stuff. you for having me. Oh, yeah, it's our pleasure. So, Hela, um, just tell me a little bit about the project in general, what you're working on. Well, the project I've been working on is a very personal project. Um, it's about my family village um, that was in Palestine. It's called Tantura. It's just south of Haifa. Um, now it's part of Israel. Um, and now it's actually owned by a kibbutz. Um, I started this project a few years ago uh, when I... I wanted to learn a little bit more about my family's history because growing up, my father rarely spoke about what happened to our home or what happened to our village. And so I started um, doing some research on the Internet, and I came across a story about an Israeli scholar named Petty Katz who had written the master thesis paper, amazingly enough, on my family's village and an incident that had occurred, which took the lives of about, of about 280 villagers. Um, anyways, what had happened was he had written his master thesis, and then one of the Israeli soldiers that had participated in the attack on my family's village sued Teddy for liable, because after the University of Haifa offered him his master's degree, one of the largest newspapers in Israel had published some excerpts from his master thesis. Uh, when this hit the newspaper, apparently some of the brigade members weren't happy because the, um, the reporter had used the word massacre. And that's when they turned around and sued Teddy. Well, as I was reading the newspaper article about Teddy in this lawsuit, what I ended up discovering was Teddy was using um, a memoir that was written in 1949, which was written by my father, um, as part of his defense. Well, I didn't even know my dad had a memoir. So, of course, I found Teddy's email somehow online, and I contacted him. And I told him, um, you don't know me, but I'm the daughter of this person who you're using their memoir for your uh, defense. Would you mind sending me a copy of the memoir? Wow. So this actually started a dialogue between he and I, and we've become friends uh, from this moment in time. And then he actually asked me at a certain point, he told me that he had done um, all the interviews he could do uh, within Israel and within the refugee camps um, in the West Bank and Gaza about my family village. But there was a huge portion of the population of Tantura, my family's village, that were in refugee camps in Syria. But he, being an Israeli citizen, couldn't travel to Syria. So he had actually asked me if I'd be willing to go to Syria and meet with these people. And, of course, at the time, I thought, oh, my goodness, how am I going to do this? Like, I haven't been to that part of the world in many, many years. Um, I don't speak the language that well. Um, it just seemed really daunting at the time. Uh, but amazingly enough, several years later, I had an opportunity, and I ended up in the Middle East. And, in fact, I landed there. Uh, literally two weeks, in Le I landed in Beirut two weeks before the war began in Beirut. And by chance, the day that the attack started, I was on my way from Beirut to Damascus. And when I crossed over to Damascus is when the attack happened, and that's when I ended up being stuck in Damascus. 
um, for the 50 days as, as you know, Israel was launching an attack um, against Lebanon. So it was at this time that I thought, okay, you know, I'm here, and this is clearly I'm here, and this is what I, I need to be doing. And that's when I started um, meeting some of the villagers who are, who are actually, to this day, 62 years later, still living in refugee camps. Wow. Wow. So uh, obviously it's a very searing, very, very personal um, project for you. Um, so of, of what you've learned throughout the entire process, what have you found most striking, um, either personally or what would other people find most striking? Well, I think for me, the, one of the things that was really interesting um, in meeting these villagers um, in the camps is, is that somehow, you know, these people live uh, very, very modest lives. Um, you know, they don't have a, a lot of disposable income, if any, so their homes are very humble. Um, but there's a certain sense of community uh, that they have somehow created or recreated. And I was welcomed with my camera crew, like, wholeheartedly. Every time I entered someone's home, there's just kind of this immediate connection with spirits. You know, like, there was no real, like, formality. You know, it, there was never... A, like, I never felt uncomfortable. I never right. felt unwelcomed. It was pretty incredible. And the other thing is, is I also felt that there wasn't actually a whole lot of anger with these people. I, I felt there was there was a lot of pain and a lot of sadness and definitely a lot of longing to return to their homes. Um, but there wasn't a lot of anger, which was really striking and interesting to me as well. Yeah, yeah. Um. So you may you may have touched on it a little bit earlier, but um, what what exactly brought you to uh, the triangle? Because you, you you came to Raleigh several weeks ago. What exactly brought you here? Well, in the process of interviewing the people that I could find from the village, I discovered that I actually have a cousin that lives in Raleigh, who is um, a first cousin, and who was the mayor of the village the day that the village got attacked. So I had never met him before. Um, and, in fact, his wife is also from Santura, and, and um, so I actually got their phone number from Teddy Katz in Israel, and this is the first time I actually ended up speaking to, you know, a blood relative who lives in, in North Carolina, and so I flew out to come meet with him and to interview him um, and listen to his recollection of, of that moment in time when our family became refugees. So, um, was this was this your first time in the Triangle? I would assume so, but was this your first time? Yes, it was my first time. Overall, how was the experience? It was incredible. Uh, beautiful state, uh, nice, nice people, and um, I hired a local cameraman and a local sound man, and both of them were actually very uh, politically astute and very aware of the Palestinian situation, so I didn't even have to give them any briefings about what... Uh, history was, which was really refreshing and, you know, uh, really pleasantly surprising. I mean, I, so, um, you know, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> well, just, uh, I guess, of the documentary in a whole, um, do you foresee a timetable? Do you know how, how much you have left? Or any, are there any uh, really integral pieces you have missing? Well, I've, I've now... Uh, shot the majority of the documentary. I still have one interview left, which will be with my father. Um, and so I figured since he's, he's here in L.A. and readily, readily available for me, um, you know, it'll be one of the simpler interviews, maybe. We'll right. see. Um, 
Does it have and a title yet? Then I'll be able to start the editing process, hopefully. Do you have a, do you have a title yet? You know, my working title at the moment is The Road to Tantura, but that will probably change um, as I start structuring the story, and I'm sure it'll start telling me what it really right. should be called. <laughs> yeah, so um, where, where can people find out more information now? Is there anything you can uh, direct them to to get more information for the time being, or do you just have to wait? I think they're going to have to wait right uh, now. Um, I still have quite a long road ahead of me in terms of editing. Um, I have probably close to 100 hours of footage now, so... It's wow. going to be, um, you know, uh, quite a task, and I'm looking forward to it, actually, to um, start crafting the story, um, you know, to kind of give justice right. to this uh, little village in Palestine. Mm -hmm. So um, what do you plan with, um, to do with the uh, documentary when you're done? Are you going to take it to festivals or just solicit it wherever you can? Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm planning to take it to all the festivals. You know, any festivals that um, will seem appropriate for it. So that is absolutely on the agenda, yes. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we wish you the best of luck with everything. Um, again, I've, I've been speaking with Hella Gabriel, live from Los Angeles. Um, she's working on a documentary detailing uh, what exactly happened in her home village in Palestine, um, I believe 1948, right? That's exactly right. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you very much again for, for taking time to join us. Thank you, Tommy. Awesome. Well, uh, have a good day. Uh, and this, again, this is Hella Gabriel on VIP on Eye on the Triangle. Thank you. Hear this on Eye on the Triangle. Your local music news. On Saturday, June 19th, an assemblage of 17-plus performers, including musicians and stage magicians, will be gathering with friends at the Triangle Brewing Company, located at 918 Pearl Street in Durham, to raise money for Future Kings of Nowhere's frontman Shamiel's battle with cancer and to kick off the Friends with Benefits initiative, he's starting with his wife, Rebecca. Here, this is joined by Shane and Rebecca to talk about a benefit on June the 19th that serves two purposes to help them raise money for Shane's medical bills and to kickstart the nonprofit called Friends with Benefits. Um, it's a nonprofit that... Uh, we're raising money to buy supplemental health insurance for local musicians. And supplemental health insurance is uh, different from regular health insurance in that it um, basically if you get sick, they just send you a check. They don't, they don't pay for your doctor bills. They just give you money when you go to the doctor. So it will actually be helpful for not only musicians who don't have insurance, but also musicians who have insurance and, you know, all the expenses that come with being sick as well it'll sort of have a buffer for that yeah and that's because that's one of the things that we found with uh my getting cancer uh i have insurance through rebecca and even even with that insurance uh we're still you know tens of thousands of dollars in uh in debt with uh the you know, the co-pays and, and the deductibles and the prescriptions and things like that so that's the kind of thing that we're trying to fight against with Friends with Benefits. So if I understand what I read online correctly, you're setting up Friends with Benefits as a trust fund? Um, it, it's not exactly a trust fund. It uh, will raise money and then take applications from musicians. Um, and then uh, there will be a panel of people who, who select uh, the, the folks that get covered with the money and will actually use the money to buy supplemental health insurance from a place like Aflac or something like that. 
And there'll also be the option to buy into if so if it's if you don't fall under the conditions of being covered by the friends with benefits supplement, then then you can also opt in on your own at our group rate. Is this benefit tied to the earlier fundraiser of this album kills cancer or is it has it grown more organically? I feel like I think the one with Laszlo, the album with Laszlo in, in New Jersey was was sort of separate from this. I mean, that was his idea and he ran with that and which has been fantastic. But I think this one was just a whole bunch of different people in the triangle who were interested in helping out in different ways and just sort of pulling together all of that interest and energy and support into one one big day. That's true. We, we kept, when I got sick, we kept hearing, how can I help? How can I help? So many people wanted to reach out and do something. And uh, this was sort of a, a way that we could do that. Like you're saying, pull it all together. And it all comes together on Saturday the 19th at the Triangle Brewery in Durham, about 12.30 in the afternoon. Do you know what bands are playing that day? It's packed with great bands all day. I'm really excited about it. Um, I, I hope that my energy keeps up, that I can be out there as much as possible. Um, but um, And it's also, it, it, it was set up so that it's not like a normal show where all the headliners are at the end of the night. Um, they're kind of scattered throughout the day. So I get... 4.30, uh, Jason Kuchma from Red Collar is playing. And at 8.30, the Bowerbirds are playing. And uh, later on at 11, uh, Hammer No More, the Fingers are playing. And then Schooner's in there and uh, Tea and Tempest and, and uh, Reese McHenry from Dirty Little Heaters. And, uh, um, uh, yeah, I think they are playing. <laughs> and the... The Neurotics and and uh, Free Electric State. I mean, there are a ton of bands. Yeah. Is there a website that our listeners can go to to get that list, as well as a schedule for the event? Yeah, there's a um, a Facebook invite. If you just do a search in Facebook for "This Machine Kills Cancer," there's a page, and then there's an event. And if you also go to um, Shane's blog, which is www.thismachinekillscancer dot tumblr.com and tumblr is just t-u-m-b-l-r no e and we have all the details plus uh, all of shane's story is on that blog too are you comfortable sharing some of that story with us now i mean you've been a friend of knc for a long time a few months ago you moved to new york and then what happened uh, it was actually almost a year ago that we moved to new york um yeah well uh, we were headed up there um for me, kind of just to see what it was like, see what it was like to play music in the big city, Rebecca was going up there uh, to pursue her MFA uh, in design. And um, uh, a month or two after we got up there, I just I started getting sick, and it felt like the flu at first. It felt like other things. Uh, and then it got to the point where I we lived on the third floor, and by the time I was climbing the stairs to our apartment, I had to lean over and grab the rail like I was an old man and, and catch my breath. Um, so I was worried that, that I had uh, developed pneumonia. I, I wasn't sleeping at night and having fevers and, and my heart was racing and things. So I uh, went to the hospital thinking it was pneumonia. Um, they treated me for pneumonia. It wasn't pneumonia. They, they took an x-ray and saw tumors kind of all through my chest. Um, and then that was when this... Uh, whole cancer thing started and how are you doing now it's it's doing really well the uh so the there was this first course of chemotherapy um that was designed to uh work on the the initial 
the large tumor by my heart, the cancer in my lungs, the cancer on my pancreas. Um, and it, it knocked the spit out of that stuff. It, it, it shrunk it all really quickly and, and I was doing well. And then right as we were wrapping that up, uh, they did an MRI and, uh, or no, I started having really bad headaches and, and strange vision problems. So they did an MRI and discovered that, uh, some tumors were growing in my brain. Um, and it was because the, the drugs that they were using on my chest just don't cross what's called the blood brain barrier. Um, there are all these mechanisms to keep toxins out of your brain. Uh, so they had to start a whole new regimen of stuff to, to work on the tumors in my brain. But, uh, from the scans, it, it looks like that's going really well too. I feel very healthy. I mean, this, this, this regimen has been much tougher than the last. I'm in the hospital for a week, out of the hospital for a week. And I do that every other week. Um, so that's, it's kind of exhausting, but, um, I feel good this week. I feel good right now. So that's good. Was moving back home due to the location of the medical facilities or was there some support that you were looking for? I think it was really a culmination of a whole bunch of things. I mean, previous to this, we lived in Durham for about 10 years. And so this was home still. And it's lucky that we happen to have so many great medical facilities here. And on top of that, it was my family's here. Our friends are here. There's amazing communities here. We just sort of came back and it was, it's also, it's so much easier to live in Durham than it is in New York. New York is, it, there were so many things like Shane couldn't have gone on the subway after he started getting treatment and a whole lot of other hurdles. So coming back here was just kind of the obvious, like we, as soon as Shane got out of treatment, we packed up the Civic and drove back that day. I feel like I got sick and in New York and just like closed my eyes and did one of those trust falls backwards and landed in the arms of uh, the community here in Durham because and, and and the triangle in general because everybody has been so incredibly supportive and wonderful. It's been amazing. Yeah. Well, we're talking about support. The benefit is one way that local musicians are helping you out, but there's also a compilation album that they've put together. Can you talk about that for a little bit? I, I am so excited about this. I, I've uh, I've heard the tracks as they've as they've been coming in, and every single one is phenomenal. And, and you know, I get I get chills listening to them. Um, different different artists have done a lot of the people that are playing at the benefit, um, you know, the Neurotics and Hammer No More the Fingers and Jason Kuchma and uh, a couple of people that aren't playing at the benefit um, have all covered different Future King songs, uh, mostly off of that. Uh, one album that we released. Uh, there's one song off of the the solo demo that I did, um, but uh, yeah, they're all there are so many talented, incredible musicians around here. It's it's really cool to hear to hear my stuff sort of reinterpreted by these other people. If people can't make it out to the show, will there be any other way to pick up the album? Uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll be selling it at Chaz's. Yeah, for a long time. I bet it'll be at Chaz's Bull City Records. Chaz's. And also, there'll be some other uh, different things at the benefit as well. There'll be music, but there'll also be a silent auction with all sorts of things from a week of dinners at Foster's to, I think, a plane ride to... Um, the por- a porch dinner at Elodie Farms. Elodie Farms. Um, some little gift baskets, things like that. And there'll also be a bake sale and some other merch as well. 
earlier, Rebecca, it was mentioned that you were working on a MFA in New York. Since coming home, how has your focus changed? Well, I'm I'm really lucky that I eventually got a job where I'm back doing design again, and um, my current job is really supportive of you know me pursuing education and my MFA and things like that. So I might slowly get back into that, but it'll be a longer um, a longer process, and it'll be at night because right now it's it's really important for me to have my job so we have insurance. Um, but I've been doing that and I'm also, I do a lot of freelance with my freelance business, which is, um, quick brown fox design. And I'm doing a couple really projects that I'm excited about, like this, um, sketchbook project with the art house collective, I think is what it's called out of New York. So, um, I try to, I try to find some time to do art, but right now a lot of a lot of our time is taken up taken up with getting Chainwell. Uh, she's she's being a little bit modest. She's kind of been like a whirlwind of of caretaking and making sure I'm in the right place and taking the right drugs and and uh, looking up alternative treatments online and making sure that my you know keeping my doctors uh, in order and and stuff like that. Uh, I could not have made it this far without her. Staying positive, looking ahead, I hear there's a new Future Kings of Nowhere album on the works. Will you talk about that? It, it's true. Um, we're very, very slowly working on a new album. Uh, it's be, you know, because of my energy level, we kind of have to take it super slow. It's not that sort of like go in the studio for a week and bang out an album. It's going to be uh, months and months of you know a day here, a day there. But um, it will be a, a full length album, full band. Uh, sort of, I think. Um, hoping it's going to be like uh, even more build up with instruments than the last one was more more horn and string parts and things like that uh, yeah i'm real excited about it now living with cancer has your creative focus changed that's that's an interesting question um i, I i've written a, a little bit since the cancer started but it's uh it itself is very hard to write about it's a, a complicated topic um but uh I definitely notice that um, maybe on, on some of the songs that were already existing, that uh, some of the emotions that I'm, I'm going through now are, are coming out through them. Some of the, the frustration or the, the sadness or, or things like that, definitely. And it's kind of, not to speak for you, but it's changed your focus a little bit that now you know, before other things were more important than music, and now it's like music has sort of become a really important thing. Not that it wasn't ever important in your life, but now it's... I, I'm, I'm scared of, of talking too much about it because I, I don't want to go down like any kind of morbid road with, with what I'm saying. Uh, but it's it's uh, like you think about those things you want to do before you pass away, and, and I'm not going to pass away. It's This is super beautiful, and I'm... I'm getting better but it, it's something that i had to spend a while thinking about you know and 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 so i kind of like laid those things out and it was like oh okay i need to get this next album done that was one of the things that came out of that if we could return to the subject of the fundraiser going on on the 19th again for a moment i, I don't normally think of the triangle brewing company as a venue how did the show end up there um well first of all why that is a, a venue uh rick from the triangle brewing company has been fantastic and 
uh, has offered up his space, uh, you know, just uh, donated that to us uh, to use. And he's been really helpful with the sort of planning the space and getting all of that that organized. So that was key. We've had a lot of really fantastic sponsors, Triangle Brewing Company being one of them, um, and Pepper's Pizza and the merch and Indie and um, 307 Knox Knox Records. And then on all levels, there have just been so many. I mean, not only the bands, but local businesses and people we don't even know (laughs) and from all over the country. And um, a lot of people have been really close to us who've who've been integral in making this happen. So with all these people helping, you know, Rick stepped forward and said, here's the Triangle Brewery Brewing Company, please use it for this benefit. And uh, um, I actually hadn't been there before. Uh, and, and we went and had a meeting there, and, and it was great. It was really, really cool. Um, the A couple of people, I guess Red Collar had their CD release there. Um, it seems like a, a really fun party space. And, Thank you for taking the time out, Shannon Rebecca, for speaking with us. For more on This Machine Kills Cancer concert and to cheer on Shannon Rebecca's triumphs over cancer, visit their blog at www.thismachinekillscancer.tumblr.com. If you can't make it to the show and you still would like to make a donation or inquire more information about the Friends with Benefits nonprofit group, please visit their website at www.fwithb.com. This has been Hear This on Eye on the Triangle. So again, that was Shane and Rebecca Meal uh, talking about uh, the, this machine kills cancer benefit, which will be June nineteenth. Triangle Brewing Company. Um, that was Jacob Downey sitting down with them for hear this. Uh, again, they said it about ten times, but uh, this website can't get enough hits. Um, this machine kills cancer. One word. Dot tumbler. T u m b l r. Dot com. And something they actually failed to mention after the show, or not failed, I don't want to say failed, they forgot to mention that after the This Machine Kills Cancer benefit, there'll be an after party at the Pinhook, um, which actually is going to be DJed by three of uh, KNC's finest, um, if you remember back in the day. He actually has been picking up shifts lately, DJ Rochester. Um, we'll be DJing that along with uh, Brooklyn Airlift and Chuck, both uh, other KNC DJs. So the after party will be at the Pinhook. Um, my name's Tommy, Tommy Anderson. I'm here with Sedja Hindi, the brain trust of Eye on the Triangle this week. What's going on, Sedja? Thanks, Tommy. Um, that pretty much wraps up our episode for this week of Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. During the summer, Eye on the Triangle airs every other Wednesday, and so our next show will actually be June 23rd. Um, we had to hold this week's community canvas, so make sure to tune in next week at 7 p.m. It's two weeks from now. Two weeks from now. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, June 23rd. And uh, it's a good one, if I do say so myself. So make sure to check it out. You want to give us a little preview? Sure. Um, It is actually a profile of a local artist that many of you guys may know. He is actually the drummer of um, Kid Future, and he also does his own photography. So definitely make sure to check that out. Um, And we will, I guess, see you guys next week. Yeah. The week after. Surely. Well, I know I'm looking forward to it. 